Welcome to episode 24 of Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. This episode is devoted to Malta, which, while officially a country now, is actually an archipelago of small islands in the central Mediterranean Sea, sort of between the, the large island of Sicily and the country of Tunisia. Now, largely due to its location, Malta was one of the most fought-over bits of land in the entire Mediterranean world, and it's been fought over for probably 3,000 years. It was a focus of armed tension, violence, attacks between Christians and Muslims. At different points, those Muslims were Arabs, and then later on there were Ottomans. The history of Malta is very closely bound up with the history of the Sovereign Order of the Knights of St. John, which today are known as the Knights of Malta. Uh, that was not always the case, and they were mentioned in an earlier episode in this series. And the history of Malta is also tied up with all the great Christian powers in the neighborhood and the great Christian seafaring powers, like most recently the United Kingdom, and before that, France and Italy and before that, the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, of which Malta was technically a part. So its history is long and confusing. And equally long and confusing is the history, either real or theoretical, of the Jewish presence on the Maltese islands. Now, I'm going to refer to the Maltese islands as that, because for those of you who have not been there, it's important to remember that the southernmost and largest island is actually the island of Malta. Then there's a small inhabited island called Comino that actually has no roads and no cars. It just has a hotel and beautiful swimming and beaches, but it never really developed any urban centers. And the northernmost island that's inhabited is Gozo, which is accessible by ferry. Gozo does have roads and cars and is fairly big and at one point was home to the largest Jewish community on the Maltese islands. The number of Jews on all three islands has fluctuated over history and some scientists, historians, archaeologists argue that the Jewish population of Malta goes back to many centuries before the Common Era when Jewish sailors joined together with Phoenicians, who were definitely the first people who settled Malta and who brought a Semitic language, their language, in fact, which is somewhat similar to Arabic, but it's also similar to Hebrew. And it clearly has a Semitic grammatical structure and vocabulary with a lot of additions of words from French, Italian, Spanish, etc., and of all the Semitic languages today, which are essentially Hebrew, Aramaic, Arabic, and Maltese, Maltese is the only language written with Latin characters. So the history of Jewish settlement in the Maltese islands either begins back in the 8th or 9th century or even 10th century before the Common Era, when supposedly members of two seafaring tribes... Zulun and Asher, from the 12 original tribes of the people of Israel, joined forces with the Phoenicians to set up a colony and to exploit Malta's 
brilliant location as a trading post. This also served as a base for the Phoenicians in their ventures to the far western reaches of the Mediterranean when they went to Spain, Morocco, and elsewhere. But not all scholars agree on this. Other scholars, including a lot of Maltese traditionalists, believe that the first Jew who came to Malta was Saul of Tarsus, who was a rabbi, but later became known as St. Paul. So some Jews are not even comfortable with the notion that St. Paul was once a Jew, and they're also not clear about when Christianity as a religion that was completely distinct from Judaism was really born. But the Maltese legend has it that St. Paul was shipwrecked in St. Paul's Bay on his way from the Holy Land to Rome, and that he founded the Jewish community by making converts, which at that point in time, this is the very, very early years, the first decades of the Common Era, the way people were converted to Christianity was first to convert them to Judaism, and then to persuade them that of the many sects of Judaism in existence, the best one for them was the Christian sect. So a lot of Jews are really uncomfortable with the notion that the Jewish community of Malta began with a very well-known Christian saint. And they point to hard archaeological evidence and inscriptions and signs of Jewish symbols on graves and on temples from the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries of the Common Era, so well into the Christian era. But at the very latest, that's when the Jewish community of Malta began. And over the centuries, it got smaller and it got bigger according to who was ruling over Malta and what the economic conditions were and what was going on in other parts of Europe. But it was never very big. I mean, it Probably the number of Jewish families on Malta varied over history from 50 to 150, which means, roughly speaking, from 200 people to 600 people in total. So it was never exactly the New York of the Mediterranean, but Jews played an important role in trade. One Jew was even once named the ambassador of Malta to the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies. They played a role in administration at various points in the history of the Maltese Islands. And there was one Jew in particular who was quite famous around the Mediterranean world as one of many false messiahs. But he was a mystic, and he lived and worked on Comino. And he's really one of the most remarkable figures in medieval Jewish history. His name was Avraham ben Shmuel Abulafia who lived for many years in Malta, but was born in Saragossa, Spain. In the year 1240, he proclaimed himself to be the Messiah and predicted that the Messianic era would begin in the year 1290. Abulafia dreamed of dissolving the differences between Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, which had always plagued his life. And he was sentenced by Pope Nicholas III to being burned at the stake. But while the stake was being prepared, the Pope suddenly died of a heart attack. And Abulafia was subsequently freed. He settled on Comino, where he wrote many Kabbalistic, philosophical, and grammatical works, including Sefer Ha'ot and his best-known work, Imre Shefer. At roughly the same time, what was the capital of Malta in the old days, Medina, 
an old walled city known as the Silent City. It's very quiet because no motor vehicles are allowed. It's surrounded by a wall. You can see much of the main island from there. And that city seems to have harbored the largest Jewish community until the expulsion edict of 1492. And just to give you an idea of the relative sizes of these communities, at their peak, Jews represented probably one-third of the inhabitants of Medina. But that was roughly 100 people in a city of 300. So how could it be the capital? Well, a lot of the old noble families lived there, and a lot of church authorities lived there. And the sort of worker bees of the population, the bulk of the population, lived in an adjacent suburb called Rabat that was many times larger, approached 10,000 people. Now, another reasonable question you might be asking is, where did all these noble families come from? What type of nobility were they? And that's a question that it's very hard to get a straight answer to from the Maltese. The population is very much a mixed bag, largely left over from descendants of knights in the Order of St. John. So their origins are all over Western Europe, Spain, France, Italy, Germany, even England. And starting in 1800, when England conquered Malta, waves of English immigrants came as administrators, as traders, as military people, whatever. But they generally weren't the nobility. The nobility was connected to minor dynasties of secondary kingdoms in places which are today Italy, including Sicily, places which are today France, and places which are today Spain. And there are many Maltese family names that repeat themselves with great, great frequency. Sometimes I lived and worked there for two years in the mid-80s, and I sometimes thought that everybody on Malta was related to everybody else because there only seemed to be about a dozen family names. Now, I'm exaggerating, of course, but one of the most common family names in Malta is Azopardi. And a Maltese historian and linguist suggests that that name in particular has Jewish origins because it was the way of referring in Ladino to Hasfaradi, the Jew from Spain. Ha in Ladino becomes A, so like Rosh Hashanah becomes Rosh Hashanah, and Hat Sefaradi becomes Atzopardi. Don't know whether it's true or not, but it's a very interesting explanation for one of the more unusual, but nonetheless quite common Maltese family names. So during the course of the Middle Ages, Malta passed from Roman rule to Byzantine rule to Arab rule to Norman rule and eventually to Spanish rule. And ultimately, as we know, the Spanish king and queen in 1492 expelled all Jews from their realms, and that included the Maltese islands. But with an eye towards the larger geopolitical context, King Charles V of Spain in the year 1530 offered Malta to the Knights of St. John of Jerusalem to help defend it and the central Mediterranean from the growing power of the Ottoman Empire. Many Jews thought that this would be a good thing for them because when the sovereign order had been in Rhodes, they had a relatively liberal policy towards the Jews there. And 
Therefore, many of the Jews in Sicily and nearby countries who had pretended to convert after the Edict of 1492 was issued, decided to settle in Malta and take advantage of the presumptive liberalism of the Knights of St. John. Well, this was a mistake. During the reign of the Knights of St. John, the only Jews, with very few exceptions, who lived in the Maltese islands were slaves. A very large prison was built to hold these Jewish slaves with the intention of making money by either selling them to Jewish societies which grew up all around the Mediterranean to perform the holy commandment of Pidyon Shvuim, redeeming the captives. And they would simply pay ransoms and get these Jews freed and resettled in the countries where they were located. Or, ultimately, if no Jewish communities would redeem these slaves, then they would be sold as indentured servants to the noble and wealthy families of Malta itself. So throughout the rule of the Knights, the situation of Jews in Malta was very dire, and they welcomed the French conquest in 1798 because Napoleon immediately granted them citizenship and equal rights as he had done to the Jews of France itself. Now the French didn't hold on for very long. They eventually gave up the Maltese islands to the Brits after barely two years, but the Brits were also more liberal toward the Jews, particularly because they were Protestants rather than Catholics, and for a number of other reasons. And the Brits were had already abolished the Order of the Knights of St. John in their own islands, and they quickly did so in the Maltese islands too. So briefly, the Order sought refuge in St. Petersburg, but of course, the order was Roman Catholic, St. Petersburg was Russian Orthodox, and that was a doomed marriage from the start. It only lasted a couple of years. Now, what happened to the order of the Knights of St. John in the years since is quite a fascinating story, not directly relevant to the history of the Jews of Malta, but very relevant to our understanding of this peculiar organization and its unique relationship with the country of Malta. The quickest explanation I can give you is that in the diplomatic world, in every capital city, the whole group of heads of mission, whether they're ambassadors or consuls general, whatever they might be, is collectively known as the diplomatic corps. And the diplomatic corps is typically very hierarchical. There is a dean of the dip corps, and he or she is usually the ambassador who has been serving in this, that capital for the longest time, and therefore presumed to have the most expertise about dealing with the strange locals. So, for example, at a given point, if there's an ambassador in Washington who's been there for 30 years, it's highly probable that he or she has been there longer than any other ambassador, and they therefore assume until the end of their period the role of dean of the diplomatic corps. This is mostly a ceremonial rule. However, in Malta, it's not merely ceremonial, and the deanship is held automatically, even if the guy just arrived two days before, by the ambassador of the Sovereign Order of the Knights of St. John, which has its headquarters in Rome, it issues passports, it comports itself as if it were a state, and it was awarded 
a huge strategic fortress in the middle of Valletta, the new capital of Malta, in recognition of their role in saving Malta and ultimately Western Europe from Turkish domination. There was a key battle fought in the late 1500s, which resulted in the first major defeat of Turkey. And then there was another battle at Lepanto, southwest of Greece, which was the second huge naval defeat for Turkey. And the Maltese hero of this battle of defeating the Turks at the Siege of Malta was a Grand Master of the Order named Lavalette, Jean de Lavalette. And Valletta was built in his honor, named after him, etc., etc. Now, a couple of more personal points from my experiences on Malta in the mid-1980s when I lived and worked at the American embassy there. The Jewish community was quite small. The Israeli community was growing in terms of there was an embassy with a charge d'affaires who was unfortunately the victim of an assassination attempt. So Israel responded by sending a larger contingent of security personnel. And at least at that point in time, there was no Chabad house, there was no really functioning synagogue in any kind of regular way. So the Israeli embassy hosted Jewish religious services on major Jewish holidays. And on the biggest Jewish holidays, the fall holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, they sent out a whole team from the Ministry of Security to bolster security for what would be the largest annual gathering of Jews in the Maltese islands. Now, this wasn't particularly because of Maltese anti-Semitism, but rather because Malta is a very big neighbor to the south named Libya. And at the time, Libyan investments and physical presence and Malta was growing by leaps and bounds, and the Israelis were quite concerned about that. There were some truly lovely people who made life very pleasant for the tiny expatriate community of Jews. At the time, bizarrely, in this tiny U.S. embassy where there were like maybe between five and ten key officers, people who played really important roles, of that small number, at least three were Jewish. So we began to look like, you know, somehow an embassy put together or chosen by Jews, although that was not the case. It was just coincidence because we came from several different agencies of the U.S. government. The other thing that I remember most vividly about Malta in those days was how incredibly quaint it was. They still use public buses that have been on the roads since before World War II, like since the late 30s. And the streets were mostly too narrow to drive through. You certainly couldn't drive a bus down most of the streets. You might be able to drive a little, a mini or a tiny Volkswagen, maybe, but only if there was no car coming in the opposite direction. I found heartwarming the fact that everybody seemed to know each other, which can also become oppressive. If you've never lived on a small island, you won't necessarily recognize what I'm talking about. But when you sneeze, the whole island seems to say, God bless you in unison. Like everybody knows about every least detail of, you know, did you sneeze, where you ate last night, whatever. That was both heartwarming and a little bit intimidating. I was young at the time and I was chargé d'affaires for at least half the year because my ambassador had to be away for personal reasons in Washington, D.C. for at least half the year. So he was frequently not there. And the other thing was that 
the massive modern development, which has a lot of my Maltese friends say overdevelopment, which has resulted in tearing down a lot of very picturesque old buildings and sort of ruining the landscape by building high rises and destroying what was once a very harmonious and very old fashioned atmosphere. That's gone. There's lots of modern ugly buildings and Many Maltese are, I think, rightly outraged that their heritage wasn't better protected. But the government has also gotten more and more overtly corrupt. When I was posted there, it was a little erratic and maybe a little strange. There was a prime minister named Dom Mintoff who basically banned imports, wanting to make Malta self-sufficient. So you couldn't even get like pasta from neighboring Sicily without taking a boat ride or a short plane ride to Sicily itself, buy things and come back with basic foodstuffs that we should have been able to import. But this was not massive corruption and there was almost no violent crime when I was there in the 80s. That too has changed. And even one prominent journalist who was reporting uncomfortably accurately about corruption at the highest levels was assassinated, which was unthinkable in my day. So Malta's going through changes for both the better and for the worse. I think now it is possible to get a good meal in a restaurant there. When I was there, the way people prepared vegetables was boil them in salt water for about two weeks and just before they dissolved, serve them. And there really wasn't such a thing as a fabulous restaurant in my day. Now there are many, I'm told. And there's also a completely renovated synagogue with a regular attendance and a minion every Saturday morning. And there's a Chabad house that runs a kosher restaurant. And so I can only imagine that the quality of Jewish life has improved vastly. And I look forward to being able to make a return visit as soon as possible. Thank you for your attention. And I hope to join you again soon.